morning. What a fabulous day out there, huh, to be in God's house. Uh, we're going to read the text this morning on Matthew 14, 22, 33, on Jesus walks on the water. And preceding this was the miracle of feeding the 5,000. So in the first verse, it talks about Jesus dismissing the crowd. Well, this was the crowd he was talking about. Immediately, uh, Jesus made the disciples uh, get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on the mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone. And the boat had already had a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink and cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. This is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. When I was a young boy, um, my father was a part of a Bible college and uh, a church in South Florida, which was just due west of the Bahama Islands. Um, Early on in his ministry and in the life of some of the students that he went to school with, uh, they felt compelled uh, to begin what you might call mission outreach to particular areas of the Bahama Islands. And so they began to establish certain churches in that area. And it spread all the way down that chain to the southern part of um, the Caribbean, to the Turks and Caicos Islands and on. But as a little boy, I used to always hear about my dad's ventures to the Bahama Islands. Of course, lots of people went to the Bahama Islands for vacation, but he went to the Bahama Islands for other reasons. And he would go there to speak at the churches, uh, or he would go there for week-long training sessions for the leaders who were emerging for those local churches. Uh, dad was a great teacher, and uh, he enjoyed being there. Um, and he always flew over. Uh, with one or more pilots um, that were a part of our staff there. And they always flew over in a single-engine Cessna plane. Uh, I'm thinking a 182 or 185, whatever they were called. There was not much room in the planes, usually two seats in the front and a couple in the back. You might be able to get four or five people in there. And uh, I always wanted to go. Of course, as a kid, I just wanted to fly. And so on one occasion, Dad said, well, this time, um, 
I've uh, checked with your mother and, and we're gonna take you. So for a week uh, long Bible teaching series, uh, I was in the Bahamas, but as we flew across the water and we got um, over those waters and land began to come into sight, I was fascinated by it all. I might have been about 10. And we're flying along and all of a sudden, I sitting in the back seat, the pilot just drops the airplane hundreds of feet in just a second. Just a dive bomb down and back up. I, I'll never forget the sensation. I've been on roller coasters, but it was nothing like that. I was sitting straight up in the seat looking out the window and when he dive bombed, I went all the way down on the floor. It just threw me down, and I was laying on the floor looking up at the ceiling. And I looked up at the pilot in absolute horror. His name was Mark Vernon, and he just laughed out loud. And he said, it's all right, Bobby. He said, we have to dive bomb the mission station so they know we're coming. And I thought, well, why didn't you tell me? <laughs> Can you just be a little more courteous? Maybe they had. Maybe Dad and Mark Vernon and that loud single-engine plane were talking about what they were about to do, but I didn't hear it, and it scared the life out of me. If I had thought about it, I would have known they were going to do that because that was part of the legend of going there. There was no such thing as cell phones in the 60s or early 70s, of course, and I don't even think there was a telephone on the mission compound. So... Whenever it was time to let them know we were coming, we'd dive right down, touching the treetops, and when they heard the roar of the engine, they'd get in their car and drive to the airport. It was timely. It worked out really well, but it scared the life out of me. I think in his own way, though he didn't put it quite like this, the pilot was saying to me, relax, Bobby. I've got it all under control. I'm the pilot of the aircraft. And when I think of this story, that's the title that emerged for me. Relax, people of God, disciples who follow Jesus. God's got it all under control. You've got nothing to worry about. Makes no difference what you're going through, whatever storm you face, you have nothing to worry about if indeed God's in control which he is. You'll notice, as uh, John mentioned at the beginning, that this passage comes immediately following the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus instructs the disciples to get on the boat and go to the other side of the lake, the Lake Galilee. We've encountered this lake in our series, Rediscovering Jesus. This lake was about 600 feet below sea level. And the plateaus around the lake, especially the ones to the east of the lake, allowed for winds to come across, cool winds at night, and to run into those moist, warm winds of the low-lying Sea of Galilee, 600 feet below sea level. And as you know, you don't have to know much about weather to know when cool winds sweep in and hit moist, warm air, storms erupt. And the Sea of Galilee was famous for storms. This was just one of them. As a matter of fact, there's another passage very similar to this one 
The detail's a little different, but the outcome roughly the same, where the disciples were out on that same lake, this time with Jesus in the boat, and he was sleeping in the bow of the boat, apparently with his, hand on, his head on a, a sand ballast that would have been used as part of the fishing routine. Sound asleep, and, and a storm like this one swept over them. And they were terrified, so terrified that they could not understand why he was so deeply in sleep and they woke him up and said, are you going to let us drown? Master, aren't you going to do something? And immediately he rebuked them for their lack of faith and stood up and said, it's time for you waves to be calm. And the waves were calm. And in a similar way, these disciples on this occasion experienced the same power of God on that same lake with those cool winds rushing down from the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. They were out, we think, about three to three and a half miles across a seven-mile lake, roughly halfway, right in the middle of it all. And they were straining at the oars. Notice also what time of the day it was. You can't tell it exactly from the text, but one we know of uh, the uh, watches of the Roman watch said it was a particular time of the night. It was somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. in the morning. Uh, Fill in the details. They'd been on the sea all night. The waves were going to capsize their boat. And in terror, they wondered what to do now. Jesus, of course, comes to them on this occasion walking on the water. Just before I I got up here, um, Keith DeVries and John were talking about the passage, and they said, wonder what it looked like when the disciples saw Jesus coming to them. I hadn't really thought about that. But I wonder what it looked like. He was walking on the water. Does that mean he was walking over the waves and then down in and then back up again? Or is he just kind of surfing like a California surfer on top of the highest wave and walking on that one? Or was he walking in the valley and then when the wave dropped, they would see him and then he would disappear and then he would reappear again? I don't know, but he appeared walking on the water. And the first thing they did, of course, as you know from the text, is they looked out and they were terrified. They thought it was a ghost. Now, maybe a little background here would be helpful. The ancients, including them, no doubt, had an understanding of the waves of the sea as being, well, let's just put it this way, a huge, catastrophic, giant battle between the forces of evil and the forces of good or God. Sailors always saw it that way. These were experienced fishermen. I don't know if they viewed it quite that way, but you could fill in the gaps and at least understand that it was part of their paradigm. And so they look out into this catastrophic storm and they see someone walking on the water and really, honestly, what would you have thought? Would you have immediately thought to yourself, oh, Thank God there's Jesus to help us. Or would you have said to yourself, am I seeing things? Is that a ghost? They thought they saw a ghost. Now now notice in the passage, I think this is fascinating. Uh, There's several accounts of this, but one of the accounts says that Jesus started to walk right past them. 
It wasn't like he walked up to the boat and hopped in and said, how you doing, fellas? What are you worried about? He started to walk past the boat. It's as though they had to shout out Jesus. Stop. Though it's not put quite that way. When they realized it was Jesus coming to them on the water, Peter, you know the story, the impetuous one just says, I can't stay in this boat. He says, Lord, if that's you, if it's really you, walking toward us on the water, call me to come to you. Now, what we uh, want to assume when we see the word if, the tiny little if, is it's really a question mark. I'm not sure it's you, but if it's you, that wasn't exactly how he was stating it. As we understand it from the original language, it wasn't like, if you're out there, it was like, Lord, since I heard your voice, since it's you on the water, will you please call me to come to you? And of course, Jesus does, and Peter comes, and he walks a bit, and then he sinks, and then Jesus steps into the boat. I wonder if he picked Peter up and kind of threw him into the boat like you would a little kid and then crawled into the boat and the storms calmed down. There's so many elements to this story, isn't there? So many things you could extract. I I, want to mention a couple before I go to points of application. There's a doctrine in the church that's absolutely essential to the Christian faith. We don't emphasize it a lot. We assume it. But let me take a moment to emphasize it. It's this. When you discover or rediscover Jesus the way we're rediscovering him in the Scriptures, you remember again that Jesus was fully God and fully man. Not a mixture of both that comes up with a third kind of being. Not really God and sort of a phantom man. Not really man and sort of a phantom God, but fully God and fully man. The mystery of the incarnation, the deity and the humanity of Jesus Christ. Complete and full in that one person, Jesus. Two natures. Again, we don't talk about it a lot, but we see it a lot. And I think we see it in this passage. Notice one of the activities that begins this whole episode. What does Jesus do? He goes into the hills for solitude, for rest, and for prayer. Do you realize how human those activities are? The need for solitude, the need for rest, and the need for prayer? Oh, let's put it another way. God doesn't need prayer. We pray to God. And we see this very human Jesus, exhausted from ministry, in need of solitude, walking in the hills around the lake and communing with God. And in those moments of prayer, just like the other episodes that we see in the life of Jesus when it comes to prayer, he's going there for two reasons. One, to unite himself with God as to God's will, to understand fully what the will of God, his heavenly Father is, and two, to give him strength to follow it. So utterly human, so much like us. 
in prayer, we do our best to understand the will of God and then beg for the strength to follow. Uh, by the way, if Jesus needed that, how much more us? You know what scholars say, um, based on the numbers of hours that the disciples apparently were there and they calculate, they say they think Jesus was up in those mountains for six to seven hours in prayer. When's the last time you spent one full hour in prayer? Jesus, the Son of God, completely united with God the Father, spends large amounts of time in prayer. That, that's the humanity that emerges from this passage and other parts of it. Well, you see the deity. It's pretty obvious he walks on the water. That's not a human activity. Don't try it in the deep end of the pool. It won't work. Only God could command the winds and the waves and walk on them as if they're glass. Matter of fact, there's many references in the Old Testament that sound like this. As a matter of fact, um, some of the words in the passage we read earlier sound like this. Um, and frequently, God is referred to as the God of the wind and the sea and the waves. It's, it's a statement that God is over all of it in Isaiah and Psalms and Nahum and lots of places. And Jesus steps into that Old Testament tradition and says, you remember, don't you, without saying it in so many words, you remember that God is the God of the sea and the God of the wind and the God of the waves. Watch me. I will step into this chaos and I'll walk on top of it and then I'll calm it. I'm fully God. Um, back to the story in terms of uh, not just the truth concerning who Jesus is, but the truth of the application to our lives. I, I entitled the sermon, Relax, God's in Control. And I should tell you this, um, on that day when I flew to the Bahamas with my father and the pilot, and he, in effect, said to me, Bobby, relax, I'm in control. I knew there was good reason to do that. Mark Vernon was a rather legendary Vietnam combat pilot. And the stories I'd heard from him since I was even younger than that trip amazed me. He dropped the helicopters right down into the rice paddies day after day after day. He said, I remember lifting off of the fields and going back to the landing base and looking at all the bullet holes everywhere and thinking to myself, how did I make it through that one? He knew how to fly. I knew he knew how to fly. And even though I was scared, I knew I could relax because he had it under control. God says to the disciples and to you, relax. 
more than a great combat pilot who dive-bombs a mission station, you can be confident God's in control. Why? Because he's transcendent. Because he stands above all your circumstances. As a matter of fact, even in the story itself, I want you to notice where Jesus was when the storm kicks in. He was up where the storm started. He was on the plateau where all the winds were going to begin. He was in the atmosphere that created the chaos, and he was on top of it all, and he was looking down on the lake. The transcendent God of the universe epitomized in Jesus Christ from the plateau looking down to the lake of Galilee, transcendent above it all, controlling it all. Why relax? Because God's in control? Because he's the Lord of heaven and earth. Of all your circumstances, he transcends them all. There, there is no real way to have absolute confidence that God's in control if he's just with you down here. What we need to know is that God is not just walking with us down here, but the almighty God of the universe is above all of it. And God through Jesus Christ says, I am. I stand above your circumstances. I'm the sovereign one. Relax, I'm in control. But there's another reason why he says relax, I'm in control. And it means so much just the opposite of what I said. The God who's on the plateau, the God who's up there where the storms begin, the one who's the creator and sustainer of all things, enters into the sea, right into the midst of the storm, and walks on the water. How much more terrified could they be? And Jesus walks into their terror. Oh, really? He could have calmed the storms from the plateau, right? He could have spoken a word, but he didn't. He entered their situation, walked right up to them, and invited them to relax because the almighty God of the universe was intimately with them. I, I, I frequently notice in passages like these that even though God could have showed up earlier, he didn't. Frequently, the time delay is maddening, but it's always perfect. When you think the boat's about to capsize, God shows up. So first, we can relax because God is the absolute transcendent God of the universe. We can relax because that very God in the person of Jesus Christ walks with us in our circumstances, even though transcendent above them. And we can relax. We can relax because God does more than just fix the problem. God does more than just be the king of the universe. God enters our reality, fixes the problem, and in the midst of entering our reality, and in the midst of fixing the problem, he says to us, I want you to be part of this. Get out of the boat and come to me. I want you, in the midst of your current reality, with all the winds and all the waves, to take a step of faith with me. What an incredible God. 
You know, frequently, uh, we think of faith as God entering our story. Let me turn that upside down. The primary message of faith is God inviting us to enter his story. It begins that way with the story. He commands them, get on the lake. I don't know, but they may have known that conditions were ripe for a storm. He says to them, I want you, as a part of the mission that you've signed up for with me, I want you to do this. Get in the boat and go across the lake. And then, in effect, he's saying to them as he says to us, I want you to enter my story. The story is really not about you, Bob. It's about me. And you'll find your highest identity not by focusing on you, but by focusing on me. Not by thinking about your story, but by entering my story. And when you enter my story by faith and believe and follow, you'll find life that's eternal and abundant and free. Come on the journey, Bob. Relax. I'm in charge. Trust me and test yourself on the journey. Trust me and enter my story of salvation because I'm the God of the universe. I, I wonder when I preach things like this and think about a text like this with you, I just wonder what's going through your head, where you are, what your life circumstances are. You know, it would take way too much time, but wouldn't it be a delight after reflecting on a passage like this to hear multiple stories of how God entered people's lives and asked them to continue to believe and to continue to follow? Wouldn't it be amazing if someone were to tell a story right now and they said to us, just a few moments ago, I realized that I can relax because God's in control. I hope you can, because I'm pretty sure that whatever you're going through, some other Christ follower has already faced. And I'm also pretty sure that some other Christ follower has experienced the grace of Jesus Christ and his presence in the midst of what you now face. So have faith. Enter God's story. Relax. He's in control. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are the God of the universe, the the God who commands the winds and, and the waves. But Lord, that's just an image. We think for life. It's not just about the elements on the Sea of Galilee or the Atlantic or Pacific. It's, it's about 
It's about life. You're the God of all our circumstances and all our details. And Lord, you're so gracious to us that even when the mess that we walk through is of our own making, (laughs) still somehow you leave the plateau and you enter our boat. On occasion, Lord, the the mess is not of our own making at all. It's just it's just the mess called sin. And we inherit it because we're part of a sinful world and and we thank you again for giving us the faith to follow you and to enter your story and help it to redefine our story and and for entering our boat. We pray, Lord, that uh, today as we leave this place, you will reassure us of your sovereign grace, that you will help us to relax in faith and to remember and believe and embrace the reality that you're in control. And we'll thank you for that. In the name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.